Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. In this conversation, I speak with Lewis Garrard, an occupational psychologist and partner and business leader for Mercer's Singapore career business. Voted a top 100 global future of work influencer, he is a regular contributor to publications such as the Harvard Business Review and Talent Quarterly, and he speaks on the subject of people science, HR data, employee engagement, and leadership. In his commercial work, Lewis leads a team of economists, social scientists, engineers, and consultants to help clients and customers implement data-driven reward, talent, leadership, and employee engagement programs to help improve organizational performance. Chartered by the British Psychological Society as an occupational psychologist, Lewis graduated from the University of Nottingham in the UK with an MSc in occupational psychology and a first honours BSc in psychology and cognitive neuroscience. He is also qualified by the British Psychological Society to use both ability tests and personality questionnaires to assess talent. Having supported the development of several organisation and HR capability programmes, Lewis has deep expertise in making people programmes relevant for C-level executives in global companies, as well as facilitating senior leadership teams to help them unlock leadership effectiveness. Lewis, thank you very much for joining me in conversation today. I'm excited to be with you, Natalie. Yes, thank you very much for inviting me. My pleasure. I'm going to launch with a big question, which is the one that I always ask my guests when we open these conversations. And feel free to answer this in whatever way you feel moved. I'm curious to ask what you feel or think is happening in the global human psyche right now. Wow, that's a really big question. (laughs) So... You know, the global human psyche, you know, actually my first instinct was to say fear. Mm. And, you know, I think that's probably heavily influenced by the pandemic, which is causing a lot of anxiety, the political situations in many countries, you know, you see a lot of tension. But also I think the volume of change people are experiencing. So they're scared about their health and the health of their loved ones. I think you see a lot of fractious fighting and there's anxiety about the health of society more generally. And then I think a lot of people are experiencing this sense that, wow, everything's going to be very different for me, even just the transition to working from home for many people. I think um, it's a complete change in routine, isn't it? So I, I would say that the overarching tone must be one of a lot of uncertainty and, and, and anxiety. Mm. Um, so I wish I could be more optimistic than that, Natalie. <laughs> and it'll be interesting to revisit that question in September when this comes out, because I think if the last year has taught us anything, it's how rapidly and unexpectedly things can change. No? 
no doubt, yeah. Mm-hmm. So do you think that the pandemic and the changes that we've had to adapt to have influenced what we prioritise, whether as individuals or within businesses? Yes, definitely. Absolutely. I think actually I um, sort of when I talk to organisations, I talk to a lot of different companies and I've noticed that they've moved from some things, you know, this whole conversation about the future of work, for example, or, Mm. you know, maybe more practically digital transformation, you know, in its various guises. It's, that was previously sort of just an academic exercise, intellectually stimulating, <laughs> but impractical, you know, for a lot of companies. Oh, yeah, we'll get around to it. Mm. Uh, it's become a lot more urgent. And frankly, it's a bit like, well, hold on a second. You know, we really need to get this done right away. For, on the personal level, I think people in many cases have sort of stepped back from their lives um, I've seen a lot of people make career changes or moves. Mm. Um, living in Singapore, it's quite a transient community. There's a lot of people here who are not from here. And it's been very interesting to see the number of people who have decided that perhaps that they should maybe return to where they're from and move on to their next destination mm. as a result of some of the things that have happened around us. So, you know, it's a time of real change. And, I, you know, I wonder also if people have given up a little bit on city life. You know, there's mm. the, the advantages of living in a city, particularly if you're outside of your, I was going to say hunting days, that's the wrong <laughs> language. But, you know, <laughs> you know, you're, uh, when you're trying to find your partner, yeah. you know, people who are a bit more settled start to step back and think, well, mm. you know, actually maybe there is a different lifestyle for me. So, you know, that's, it's causing a lot of people to reevaluate their priorities mm. for sure. And I think that piece around being in a different chapter of life and wanting to to maybe have a different lifestyle if you're settled down. Also, the possibility of maintaining uh, one's career without having to be at the heart of a city, that's an interesting proposition right now. I imagine that remote working has made it possible for a lot more people to envision a different life for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. And they've started to see the advantages of the you know, flexibility in the purest sense. You know, if you're working at home, if you want to, you start at seven and, you know, you take a break at 11, maybe go out for a run or a cycle, have a long lunch, get back at two. If you are in the physical space where your company has asked you to go, you don't really have those options. And, Mm. you know, you start to see people really realising that actually, this is maybe a lifestyle that I want. And, (laughs) uh, And I find it very interesting that many of the most senior business leaders I talk to really want people back in the office you know there's this sense that well I need to get the people together and re-energize them like okay but you know many people have now adjusted their lifestyle and their expectations Mm. and frankly we're going to need to think about that very differently in future I think you know how what does it mean to have a community within an organization that doesn't actually see each other very often how do you build that Mm. sense of belonging It's become a very interesting problem. And actually, yes, as we emerge from the pandemic, and it's it's likely to take longer than we expect as well. I mean, I know in the UK, there's a third wave happening in many parts of the world. There are still very stringent restrictions. So it's it's likely that this is going to be a longer term climb than we'd maybe anticipated at the beginning. And I'm sure that certain practices, the longer we're in the situation, they're going to stick, including the ability to work more flexibly and remotely. And I guess when it comes to managing a more blended workforce. 
I'm curious what you feel are some of the ways in which organisations can deliver a positive employee experience, both virtually and in person, and also find a way to maintain that sense of workplace culture. Yeah, it, it's um, topic de jour. Yeah, you know, <laughs> th- there's there's one thing that I want to say, which is that um, the inequality I think that gets created as you start to separate your workforce into the roomies and the zoomies, you know, the people <laughs> who are... Yeah, it's an amazing term, isn't it? Um, I like that. You get the people who are allowed to be in the room and, you know, this is reserved for a very special group of people who are permitted to, I don't know, let's say travel, because you could, can't imagine travel budgets coming back mm. even when, let's say, travel opens up again. Companies have just tra- just saved far too much money mm. to start to return travel to, let's say, 2019 levels. Um, but, of course... If you are the person in control of the budget, you'll have no problem approving the budget for yourself. And Mm. so, you know, it becomes sort of an elite status thing that you can go somewhere else and meet with other people in Mm. person. And the rest of us are relegated to the, you know, tenuous relationship of of Zoom and uh, other, you know, video conferencing type platforms. And I think we should be very thoughtful about that because, you know, therefore relationships accrue to the people already in power Mm -hmm. and the rest of us are just trying to build bridges uh, through these digital mediums and I think the research you know I really I find it very interesting that organizations are investing a lot right now in this concept of organization network analysis Mm -hmm. I don't know if you've heard of that before no please go ahead describe what it is (laughs) So basically, it's um, looking at the connections between people in a community group organization based on their digital interactions, which are fairly easy to track email, calendar invites, even messenger, you know, through some kind of approved company system, which are pretty reliable signals of relationship strength, at least within a work context. And... um, You know, that data is very intriguing because as people really start to look at it, they've also then, or they were before the pandemic, uh, at some companies were adding badges that sort of geolocate you and figure out who you're close to. Hmm. And I think this technology will become more common, actually, because even on my phone here in Singapore, I have a app called the Trace Together app, which tracks who I'm close to for contact tracing purposes. It just... Hmm looks who's close to me in terms of Bluetooth and stores that information locally on my phone. And so if I, yeah, if I was a case, the government would be able to look at that data and contact people who I'd spend a long time sitting next to or something like that. It's Mm. very clever. Mm. So as we get used to that technology, then seeing it turn up at work wouldn't be so surprising. And looking at that data, I was listening to a researcher the other day saying that it, you know, to build a trusting relationship in person takes five or six, you know, it's a relatively small number of interactions Mm. before you're like, this is a person I kind of know and I'm familiar with. Mm. Whereas over technology, it's like three times that. Mm. So you have to have many more interactions with the person um, for that person to feel like this is a person that I know and I'm familiar with. So we have to try a lot harder. It takes a lot more effort if we're connected via tech. And I think that's you know, quite interesting to see companies, um, I'm sure there might be some variability in that data, but some the companies really starting to use technology to explore this. 
because they realise that you need people to get be connected, to carry ideas, to feel bonded. You know, we have that deep rooted human need to feel part of something bigger than ourselves, to be part of a community. It's why people work like, I think, working in big companies, even though perhaps it's much easier to work for yourself. You don't have some crazy narcissistic boss lording over you, but um, at least you can make some friends at work, you know, if you go to work. Uh, and so, yeah, you know, I think um, we're starting to see the emergence of, of much more data-driven practices where companies are trying to study this. So now on to your question, I realise that, <laughs> sort of digressed a little bit which is what so how do you how do you actually you know create an environment that does this well I mean the jury is still out in my view Mm. I I think what we will see is that people will want to have a bit more of a mix of time with other people physically together in an office space and some separate time where they can work independently at home Mm -hmm. And I think the actual in-person connections cannot be understated in terms of their level of importance for serendipity, you know, um, for casual interaction, feeling like you really know and understand the person and for building trust with other people, you know, to see them as part of your tribe and that this is a person that you can rely on. I think it's incredibly difficult to do that if you only have an email and video conference relationship with a person. So... I think we definitely will see companies and organisations starting to return to a bit more of a hybrid model mm-hmm. in the future. Yes, absolutely. There's so many fascinating things that I want to pull on from what you've just said. And I think one of the one of the elements, obviously, I, I tend to do a lot of speaking at conferences, or at least I did, and now much of that work is remote. But one of the things that strikes me is for the companies wishing to retain and attract the best talent I imagine that they're going to be the ones that are able to give people a much more rich cultural experience within the organisation. So it may be that in-person experiences, events, while in some companies might be reserved for the roomies as opposed to the zoomies, I imagine that for those companies being able to invest in that for their people will be much more attractive to those wishing that level of belonging and meaning from their workplace. What are you thinking about how companies can attract that sort of talent? Is that something that you're seeing? Do you think we're going to end up potentially with larger organisations having local hubs to create that sense of, I guess, like a nodule ecosystem form of work where there's local teams that come together so they can still maintain some form of contact? Yes. I, you know, it, it's very much, I think, going to be based on the business strategy that these organisations pursue mm. because we are like now looking at some organisations who are saying what we need is a much more distributed location base mm. where people, as you say, can kind of go into like local hubs. Others are saying what we need is a big central location that's kind of uh, the place where everybody turns up if they need to go to that place and it's going to be centrally located so the commuter populations of the outside of towns can easily reach it. Mm. So it depends on what kind of organisation you are. When it comes to attracting and retaining the best talent, this really high value, incredibly skilled, rare talent, many people are seeing the expectation, uh, are expecting the expectation that they want to feel like they are in an elite community Hmm. and they are able to access that community and learn from other people. And um, that usually accrues a lot of value to uh, to them, you know, in terms of their employer relationship. So they sort of prioritise that. But 
I think we will see actually people putting more focus on flexibility as well. Mm. So we've seen sort of chronic workaholism where, you know, you have these offices where people are almost encouraged to live there. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, these tech campuses where it's, well, the gym is there and the canteen has free food and there's sleep pods downstairs. Why, you know, if you don't have a partner, why leave? Maybe you'll yeah. find your partner here. <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, so that's why all of these, uh, everybody, all these people are finding their mate at work because uh, it's they spend so much time there. Mm-hmm. And now it's a bit like if you're going to do that more, uh, you know, work in a more flexible way, I think people will start to say, well, actually, you know, my expectation is that I can control, take a bit more of control over my own life. And, you know, the other thing that's interesting, Natalie, is, you know, in terms of compensation as well, we continue to see quite a widespread of... Um, compensation inequality. Mm. And so I think for the people at the top, top end that we're talking about, the really elite talent, they can basically demand anything they want and, Mm. you know, their office is a playground. But for the vast majority of other people where, frankly, because labour productivity has been very slow to grow, that sort of net compensation increase over the last 20, 30 years has been very, very slow. You know, a lot of the value, GDP value, economic value we've generated has has gone to capital and therefore the most wealthy. You can see people saying, well, is it worth it for me? Mm. Why don't I just take more flexibility and have the lifestyle I want? Yeah. And, you know, frankly, why do I need to go to the hub? So maybe the relationship with work enti- will entirely change also mm. because of this, because people will feel that they, they have that option. That's such an intriguing point. I think in some of the work that I was doing, looking at research around what people, younger people are valuing, um, one of the interesting trends that came out was the way in which people seem to be relating to money differently. And so, you know, if you're if you're young and you're living in a city and you cannot afford to buy a house and there's an insecurity and instability in your future due to the climate crisis, etc., why would you choose to go into a work that is unfulfilling, um, that pays well, but then still doesn't pay enough to provide you security. And so there's kind of this shift away from the more extrinsic, maybe hedonic rewards of great money, the promotion, the car, etc., more towards a more meaningful eudaimonic drive of, well, how do I actually engage in something that is purposeful, that does make me feel like I'm contributing? Do you think there are certain values or shifts in values that we're starting to see in this current moment in time in potentially the younger workforce? Is this a very... Uh, niche thing that I'm observing. Maybe it's in my my own filter bubble. So I think it's interesting to kind of think about when I when I hear you say uh, you've observed this and the transition from fast paced, high paying jobs with fast track careers to become a senior person earning a lot of money. That's about status. Mm. Right. You know, how do I become an important person quickly mm. and have other people look at me and say, well, that's an important person and a valuable person. <laughs> and I think we underestimate that, particularly early in life, um, as a driver, both for men and for women, um, because, again, I think, you know, people have different priorities at that pilot part of their life. You know, they want to mm. be attractive to others. And you know, perhaps that equation is changing and what people consider to be high status is a very different lifestyle. It's yeah. like you're the loser who spends all your time at work. But for, for what? For money? God, look <laughs> at you. You look terrible. When was the last time you did yoga? 
what's your Instagram account? Let me see. Well, you've got no posts. You know, what what terrible life you must be living. And the people who are respected and who are revered are the ones who are quite the opposite. It's like, you don't need to be wealthy, but wow, look at all the fun stuff that you're doing. So like, you, you know, it's a slightly cruder way of perhaps <laughs> articulating, you know, what you said, which is the shift in values. But the, the root there, I think, is um, is interesting because technology is almost facilitating that change mm. by highlighting, you know, aspirational lifestyles that are, that are not so much about wealth, but far more about, you know, the quality of life that you're living. And, you know, where has that come from? You know, perhaps it's, like I said, the opportunity to become a highly paid wealthy person has maybe diminished, you know, would I say, say compensation growth has declined or become just the opportunity of a very small elite. Mm. Uh, you know, that's possible. And and so people are like, well, what, what other opportunities have I got to find meaning in my life? I'm a big person for sort of looking at the social science around how people experience meaning. Mm. As a psychologist, someone was saying to me, you always must have your, the thing that makes us uniquely human is blank. <laughs> and fill in the blank and you know you're always wrong but you have to have one and mine is you know the thing that makes us uniquely homie is that is that we see meaning everywhere or we search mm. for meaning everywhere even when there is none mm. and uh, so people have that very deep need and as a result i think that you know the, the current modern equation really changes how people search for meaning and, uh, you know, they perhaps are looking for it in, in different places, mm. perhaps even much more focused on themselves. Mm. You know, finding myself becomes much more important. So it's interesting. Yeah, I love the picture that you paint of the, <laughs> the modern person seeking status and, and looking at their, their posts for that reflection there. Well, so coming out of this crisis then, what do you think businesses can do to better meet our desire for purpose and meaning and connection? Are there certain things that you think businesses will be looking to do in order to really tap into that or provide that? So let me start with this. Meaning is about connection. The meaning of meaning is that it connects things, connects concepts, connects ideas, connects people. And I think that increasingly people will have the expectation that when they go to work, what they do feels like it is meaningful, you know, in the sense that it's clearly connected to something that's important. Mm. So I think many organisations can start to think of their drive towards stuff like automation. So we've seen a big surge in interest in automation and the use of general purpose artificial intelligence, mm. because it's a great way to be able to do a lot of work with fewer people because people carry health risk right now. So you get not just an economic driver, but also sort of a public health driver to be adopting those technologies. But then what you recognise is that, well, the advantage of the AI is that it's far more disciplined and conscientious than any human <laughs> being could ever be. Yeah. But it usually needs some supervision, right? Mm -hmm. So the human being can then supervise the process that the artificial intelligence is looking after and start to think about what is it doing? It's a bit like when you, if you think about sitting down and watching another person do something, it's much easier to spot what's wrong or what could be done better. So imagine you are the person supervising the computer. You're basically just trying to, you know, nudge it in the right direction. And I think we will increasingly see that. And that can be very meaningful because, you know, it allows you to redirect your energy to another set of tasks and activities. The other thing is, that, of course, communities are important for people. You know, they experience 
meaning through belonging and connection. And I think we've seen over recent years that companies have stopped thinking of themselves or the sort of business model of a company as a machine. You know, the engineering model of business mm. is kind of starting to fade a bit and much more of a, as a company, as a community or a biological organism, mm. that model, which is, that's not new thinking, but I think it's now you're really starting to see it dominate. It's starting to come come through a little bit and you start to realise that in order to nourish that community, you actually have to start investing in it and, and looking after it in different ways. Just paying people and giving them a, a desk to sit at mm. it is not enough. Mm. So redesigning the work that people will do, you know, thinking of the opportunity to use technology to make work more interesting, giving... I do think we'll see a much more focus on that sense of, that you know, an organisation as a community and so... How do I belong here being very important? Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of, of work, I think, going that that direction. And then the last one, which we've been very interested in recently, is, is mental health. You know, starting to recognise that the primary tool that you have for economic contribution in the certainly, definitely in the next phase of our economy is your mind. And if your mind is not well, then you cannot be productive and there are loads of things that that can get in the way of, of you having a mind that is bit. And it's starting to look at mental fitness in the same way that you might look at physical fitness. I mean, you can be unfit, but not unhealthy. <laughs> and you can have an unhealthy lifestyle, but not be sick. And so, you know, using a similar sort of framework for, for mental health, I think, is something that... Um, many people are starting to do and organisations are starting to realise that actually one of the things that makes people unhealthy in the mind is work, Mm. not least, you know, people they interact with. So they're like, wow, you know, so I think we'll start to see that much more uh, as well. There's just so many directions we could go in this. I think I'll start with this then. So you've mentioned that obviously that you're based in Singapore, and it's a place that is renowned as being a world-class technology hub. Are there any technological advances that you've seen there that fit within the domain of work that you're really excited about, that you think are going to be picked up elsewhere in the world? Um, I think here, like I said earlier, because it's a society that is much more trusting of its government, Mm. we do tend to see much greater adoption of technologies and data that share data, let's say, um, with institutions And then that data is, frankly, used productively to kind of start to make better decisions about how to make the society operate effectively. So there is a lot of very competent use, I think, of of data about citizens. It's one of the most surveilled cities in the world Mm. because, you know, that technology is incredibly good at collecting data about what people are doing. Of course, there's an ethical concern there. Mm. But I think Singapore does lead the way trying to understand how to use that data to improve the quality of life of people. And it's, you know, really basic things like the design of the city and public transport and how people move around to make it easy. It's very hot here, Mm. so you can't spend too much time outside. So a lot of thought gets put into how do we make it easy for people not to spend too much time outside. Or it's also very wet, by the way. It rains a lot. So... You know, just by understanding how people move, there's a um, there's always a master plan here. In the work context, I would say adoption of technologies in Singapore is more evolution than revolution. Mm-hmm. And by that, what I mean is, is that you see a lot of fast-paced 
small incremental change rather than blowing something up and replacing it with a completely new way of doing things. Mm. And I think that's just the way that the economy has developed and the way that companies and business leaders here have learned to sort of think about innovation and improvement in in the economy. So we don't tend to see these kind of revolutionary technologies turning up. We tend to see these very fast-paced little incremental constant changes that sort of nudge us in the right direction very quickly. Mm. Yeah, so, you know, I, I think that... It's a, it is an advanced city, but it's much in terms of the way it's organised socially as it is the technology, you know, because those two things need to go together in order to, to function effectively. Yeah. And I wonder, certainly in, in a lot of the spheres that I'm looking at, people are speaking increasingly about the use of automation. You mentioned earlier generalised AI, and we're talking also about HR tech. What are some of the advances that you're seeing in that space that you feel have the potential to transform or support how we how we work? Yeah, well, so, uh, you know, automation and AI are general purpose technologies that basically remove transactional work. So anything that is predictable at scale is an opportunity to start to use these kinds of new new technologies. And here we do have a lot of automation. In fact, again, the government here will fund you to automate your factory. They will pay for it. Oh, wow. So that, yes, it's, it's incredible because that's what they call a productivity and innovation credit. So they will enable you to invest in your factory or business in order to make it more productive. But of course, the question then becomes, well, what is the change in the human equation at work there? Yeah. Yeah. And what we're seeing is those technologies will permeate many aspects of life, but it makes the softer skills that people bring to work far more important. So we're starting to see now that, you know, the focus here is much more on your ability to collaborate effectively and interact with other people, to be able to make sense of a large volume of information quickly. So machines are transformative in that they are really good in moving bits of information to you very fast. But people seem to struggle to process all of that information to prioritise effectively. So we're mm-hmm. seeing a lot more focus now on work being designed to try to simplify and create more focus. And then, of course, the last area is around personal and self-management. So the technologies that I'm most excited about are in this last category, which are learning technologies where increasingly there's this sort of sense that people need to constantly be on top of new trends and changes and to be able to reskill multiple times in their lives. And we're starting to realise that the internet is a wonderful resource for this, but we really need to start thinking about how we help people make decisions about how they spend their time mm. on their learning and on their personal development and you know, so you get these um, technologies that we're working on one right now, that's an AI that tries to predict skills that are going to be valuable Mm. for the, you know, next phase, let's say of your business. So pay for skills models. Um, They're valuable right now and ones that are emerging or growing very quickly. So you can use the AI to do that. So then if you think about that, that helps you define how you're paying people in your organisation. But then it also enables you to teach people these these are this kind of capabilities you should be learning because they're in demand. And so I think those kinds of technologies can be very powerful because they really help individuals stay productive and 
democratize really that kind of learning. I think what to invest your time in is a huge problem for many people right now. They just don't even know where to start. And I'm wondering, as you're saying that about the automation of repeatable, predictable tasks, what it means for many, many people who are in industries where there is still automation to be done and the reskilling of those populations and the challenge that sits there. I mean, do you think that there's going to be pushback against reskilling? I know that some people, you know, you get to a point where maybe you don't want to have to completely start from scratch. Say you're in your 50s or 60s and you don't want to invest heavily in in going into a completely different direction because you spent 40, 30 years of your career in one specific domain. What do you think the challenge is going to be there in terms of getting people, convincing people to reskill? Is it possible? Or do you think some people will just be left behind? I think some people will be left behind. I always sort of look back to the Industrial Revolution. If you think about how similar where we are now in 2021 is to perhaps where some people were in 1921. Mm. So you've got a pandemic that's just happened, Mm. um, you know, a very traumatic world war, but a huge amount of economic and industrial innovation Mm. transforming the economies, uh, industrial economies from these kind of workshops or very different ways of working. You had the electrification, industrialization of many economies and a completely new way of organizing. So you look at Ford and manufacturing, the way that the economies just completely reshaped themselves. Um, So you had the booming 20s, which was mostly about the roaring financial markets and everybody making money and having a great time uh, to try and recover from the terrible things that happened the previous decade. And then the Great Depression. Mm. And when I look at the Great Depression, I'm sort of like, well, perhaps a, a big driver of that was that the technologies and the organisations that formed the new economic equation were too far ahead of a lot of the workforce that didn't have skills and capabilities to to really contribute. So I think you do tend to see technology moving faster than people. That makes sense. And we've seen this before. And it usually results in the people who are not ready for that transition or are not able to keep up with it getting into some pretty difficult circumstances. Mm. And I think we've got that to come. So I think actually maybe we're even starting to see some of the outcome of that, even in the middle of the COVID-19 pandemic, where so many people, the people who really lost their jobs, who were out of work, were people in hospitality and retail, in jobs that perhaps are becoming less common Mm. and certainly less well-paid. And we, we really have to think about what to do about that because I think it's a really difficult problem to solve, mm. Be- particularly because, you know, the only two aspects of work that are left after you teach the machine to do all of these wonderful things, you know, all the predictable tasks, even if they're very complicated, as long as they're predictable, you know, this many inputs give you that many outputs. You can build a machine learning algorithm that can handle it, mm. that can make decisions. So that leaves us with building trusting relationships with others, so the relational aspects of work, and solving problems where data is limited, so which is the expertise aspects of work. So if the three aspects of work are transactions, relationships, and expertise, driven tasks and activities, transactions decline very quickly. Some aspects of expertise are transactional. You know, I know this so I can do it, but okay, they get automated too. Mm. So we're left with work that requires 
quite a high level of you know functioning frankly you know these are things that are that are complex dealing with other people and solving problems and we really need to think about how we can help everybody contribute to that because it's it's probably what's going to be left in my mind I'm, I'm envisioning a sort of I guess it's an ancient Greek kind of <laughs> envisioning of what we would do if we had loads of free time but of course we find things to fill it with um <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, so that's an interesting point because um, sometimes I have the bold idea of asking people what they think the future of work is. Mm. And very few people, very few of, you know, maybe one in my, uh, all the times I've asked this question, have said there will be no work mm. because we'll basically have machines as assets that will be doing the work for us. And over time, human beings will figure out that they don't need to invest in the toil of, of this kind of labor. And actually, economies function just fine as long as you, you, know, you accrue some assets that these machines that generate economic value for you and you're a part of that system and you can spend your time on, on something else. Now, you know, there's all sorts of problems with that idea, um, not least actually that looking at the people who have the resources not to work, let's say the wealthiest people in the world, they tend to work more. Mm. Um, and people who are paid very little, who seem to therefore would have no incentive to work, tend to work less. It's almost not worth it. Mm. So actually, it's kind of interesting to think about how, you know, the economics of this works, that people whose hour is worth a lot more tend to actually find it more rewarding to work more often. Mm. So I realise that we're coming towards the end of our of our conversation and the end of our time. And I'd love to ask you, if you had to choose one or two qualities that you felt were absolutely vital to the long-term success and resilience of a business, what would that be? Business attribute or a personal attribute? Actually, let's go with a personal attribute. That's perhaps a more interesting question. Mm, fair enough. Self-awareness is, I think, probably the um, most important aspect that somebody I think can have right now or just generally in life mm. not least because many people do not have it so it can currently is a competitive advantage for many folks who are really able to understand particularly how other people see them but also understand themselves mm. there's no shortage of people who are unhappy because they have made decisions that haven't given them the personal outcomes that they want, you know, that or they've under, underestimated their own needs and feelings. It's surprising to me how many people uh, don't really recognise when they are even tired or burned out, you know, mm. the, our internal mechanisms for recognising us, our own thoughts and feelings are um, pretty weak. So, you know, really a strong understanding of, of, of self. And if you read a lot of Harari's books, you know, Noah Yuval Harari, he talks about this as an important competitive advantage against machines, because if you know yourself better than you than the machine does, then you can maintain your humanity and it can't <laughs> manipulate you. So, you know, there are many reasons for, for self-awareness personally. Um, I think the other one, which I think is underestimated and, and undervalued, is, you know, self-control, hmm. because increasingly we will find ourselves self-directing no matter what level we're at. Mm. The new shape of work where you're working remotely at a time of your choosing, wherever you want to be, doing whatever task you fancy doing, requires you 
to have far fewer boundaries. In fact, one of the wonderful things that technology does is it removes boundaries. So because there are fewer boundaries in our lives, we have to install them ourselves. And this requires a lot more personal effort, I would argue. And going back to our point earlier about learning and the drive and motivation to learn, very often the incentive to learn something new is there. It's quite obvious if I learn there's something new that I can then get a new or better job. But the personal motivation and discipline isn't. Mm. And so I don't think we can underestimate the value of, of, of self-control. Um, yeah, in, in, the, in the new economy, that you know, certainly that it's emerging now. And even when we're dealing with others, particularly in the age when everybody who's in charge seems to be in che- impetuous and have no self-control at all. You know, they've got access to Twitter. They'll yell at anybody who comes near. So it's, you know, role models are not there for this. You know, it's incredible how successful people um, can be. I, I, I had a reflection on an earlier question that you asked me, and I wondered if I could also offer a thought on, you know, an emerging technology that I thought, that I think is very interesting. Yes, do. <laughs> so... One of the technologies that I think is very intriguing that we don't talk about very much because it's a bit odd is the anti-aging technology. I was not expecting that. (laughs) So the reason I think this is interesting is because longevity as a theme is important. The population is getting older, which means we'll have the average age of the working population is increasing. So that has all sorts of implications. We've been talking about young people wanting this, etc. But really, we should be worried about, well, what do old people want? Because mm-hmm. <laughs> those are the ones who are going to, you know, maybe dominate the future of work. So if, we, if that's happening, then um, that has all sorts of implications for society and the kind of work these people could do, even ambitions to learn and ambitions generally. Now, there's also an interesting movement in the Silicon Valley, this really out there kind of uh, idea that a lot of people are investing in, that actually ageing is not something we have to accept. If we start to think of it like an engineering problem, you simply need to just refurbish cells. So the reason why cells start to die and ageing happens is because of the metabolic process wears down aspects of yourselves. It's a little bit like an old car where mm-hmm. the bits get worn down and eventually break down, right? So it's the, it's the wearing out of the reproduction of cells that causes aging to occur. So the, 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 the projects, the sort of science here is, well, so how do we, if we can't stop the wearing out because, you know, otherwise the person would be dead, metabolism wears out the the, the car, so to say, you know, metabolism wears out the, the cells. How can we just refurbish? What is the possibility of that? And, um, you know, there are real people working on this problem. And so while, you know, it's kind of interesting to think about how work is changing and how some of these technologies are changing the short term of work, there's also a bunch of projects that are sort of looking at the long term future of humanity and saying, well, you know, how could we just double our lifespan? Wow. Wouldn't that be fun? As yeah. if we don't have enough problems as it is. We need a living, thriving planet before we can do that. Oh, my God. Yeah, that's uh, that's quite an, a thought experiment. <laughs> Isn't it just? And, you know, all the things that it would change. But, you know, it's this, this just seems to be no limits to what people, and these people have real funding, will spend money on. Mm-hmm. And, of course, if you're a, an elite professional and you have a lot of money, more money than you'll ever spend in your lifetime, mm-hmm. and you don't fancy dying... 
That's your investment. So, so there's some really interesting stuff going on. That's such an interesting flight of fancy. So on that note then, thinking about the future and the imaginal and what potentially we could create, I'd like to end by asking you, in your wildest dreams, with regards to the future of work, what kind of world would you like to build? I'd like to build a world where everybody can reach their potential. I mean, I think that right now, I love this idea that talent is everywhere, but opportunity isn't. Mm. And I think that's just, you know, it's just so true. And we have this incredible opportunity in the current environment, you know, even you and I just talking from opposite sides of the planet, basically, to connect people with opportunity at unprecedented scale. Mm. And that was really the promise, right, of the internet and of the early internet companies to connect people with opportunity at scale. And think of how that went. It went so badly. Mm. Who turns around and says, wow, you know, we found the most talented people in Africa and we gave them incredible opportunities without having to spend fortunes to be able to contribute in ways that we'd never imagined. No one is saying that. Mm. So I think that, you know, the future that I would like to build is, is a future where that opportunity becomes real. And frankly, I think we might have to go backwards before we go forwards on that. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode. <laughs>